Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Good day. It's so good to see everyone here in Austin. It is what we would call cold, <laughs> meaning it's in the 50s Fahrenheit and windy and wet. And I wonder how it is where you are. And um, I'm so glad that we are together today. And um, it's especially wonderful that right today, the Zen, the Cloud Zendo is bigger than the um, Zendo in Austin, Texas. So um, thank you, thank all of you. Um, some of you know that two years ago, more than two years ago, I started um, Zen chaplaincy study at Upaya, which is a Zen center in Santa Fe. And um, uh, the biggest question I've gotten from folks is, what is a chaplain? And so I thought that I would <laughs> um, talk a little bit about what I learned during the two years, very briefly. Um, and that might be a preview if you hear a topic that you're like, oh, I want to learn more about that. Reach out to me, let me know. I'd love to um, do a Dharma talk about some of the things I'm going to quickly skim over. Um, and so I'll just sort of give you a introduction about um, what is a chaplain and, and why did I pursue that study? What did I learn? And then um, quickly we'll get into a Dharma activity and so before we get super settled, I realize we will need monitor um, paper and pens. And so for there of you, those of you in the cloud Zendo, make sure you've got something to write with and on. So the title of my talk is What's a Buddhist Chaplain? And other things I learned in Zen chaplaincy study. So first off, um, a chaplain is someone who serves others with interfaith spiritual care, and that's pretty um, broad, but specifically a chaplain comes alongside someone who is suffering. And to unpack that a little bit, the word chaplain is derived from the French word for cape or cloak. And so if you can picture, you may have seen, and later you can look up if you like, um, a saint whose name was, um, I think in French, Genève can correct me later, Saint-Martin de Tours, um, or Saint Martin of Tours. Um, he was also called Martin the Merciful. And the image of him um, that um, you may have seen, uh, he actually lived in the fourth century, and I guess he was a, a Roman soldier. Uh, so he's a soldier, he's got one of those metal hats with a feather coming out, um, metal helmet. And uh, he's riding a horse and he's taking his sword and he's slicing his red cape in half in order to give it to a beggar who is in the foreground or someone who now we would call a person who is unhoused. And in this case, he was also not very much clothed. Um, and so that's where the word chaplain comes from and that action of not giving the cloak over entirely because 
um, St. Martin needed the cloak himself, um, but, um, but sharing it, making it so that he could share it with um, someone in need. Chaplains traditionally, um, and I can't speak for Europe um, in any way, so I'm curious um, what your experience is, perhaps you can share later. Um, but here in the States, um, chaplains have um, uh, typically served in hospitals, um, in the military, in prison, in um, uh, part of a police force or fire department, um, basically there to be a spiritual advisor to anyone who's working within those systems, both um, the patients in the hospital, as well as the doctors, nurses, and other caregivers, and same for um, prisoners and guards um, and uh, in the military. Um, increasingly, um, I think there's a trend that chaplains are also working in the community. So for example, here in Austin, I met with a chaplain who's Muslim, um, who uh, both works with the Muslim student group at a couple of universities in Central Texas. And he also provides Qurans and leads Friday services to men who are in prison, who interestingly to me, um, mostly converted to um, Islam uh, while they were in prison. And so they're fairly new practitioners of this faith um, that he grew up in. Um, so even though in that case, a Muslim chaplain is working within the faith tradition of um, Islam, um, chaplains are trained to be completely interfaith, um, to serve uh, the needs and viewpoint of whoever is um, in need of service. So my intention way back in August of 2020, so if you remember, we were still in lockdown, there were no vaccines, here in the States, we had not elected a new president. Um, and I was actually in Alpine, Texas, um, which already is not very populated. And during the pandemic was incredibly quiet, uh, where we were getting away from the Austin heat and enjoying a little um, time. My husband and I completed my application and I started the program in March of 2021. And my intentions were these, um, first, um, I had been teaching with Judy, uh, co-teaching um, meditation and writing intensives at that point for probably five years. And um, I heard from students how powerful those experiences were. Some of you have taken part in them. And um, I wanted to frankly learn why and, and how they worked so that I could improve them and um, better understand what we were offering and what people were experiencing and why. So that was practical. Um, I also was following um, what I call a sort of just a lifelong um, uh, calling or sense of fam familiarity um, growing up in a, a liberal Lutheran church, um, having um, a real call to a spiritual something um, and service. And then, um, Thirdly, to gain some specific skills in order to mindfully shift out of my 30 year career in nonprofit fundraising and communications. And then um, finally, frankly, to garner some outside support, um, both for myself personally and for our Sangha in general, at a time when we were experiencing a great leadership change more than I actually knew um, at the time that I applied um, so that I could better be present with all of you.
now and in the last two years and in the future. So a little program overview. Sometimes people are like, what did you do? So it was a two-year program. It occurred all on Zoom, which is not typical, but who knows what typical is anymore. Um, and uh, the first year is focused on inner chaplaincy. So if you imagine that person in need, the, the unhoused person um, that's getting half the cape uh, in the foreground of the picture, that quality inside of ourselves. And so basically to me, um, sort of caring for our inner house so that we can welcome um, guests, um, other people's emotions, other people's experiences. Um, the second year is more outer chaplaincy. Um, honestly, inner chaplaincy um, is uh, uh, a continuing process. Um, the class, my cohort was about 25 students. And in this case, since we were on Zoom, it was literally people all around the country and the world. The closest people geographically to me here in Austin were in Santa Fe and in Kansas City. And the furthest was in Seoul, um, South Korea and um, somewhere in Belgium. Um, in addition to meeting twice a year for two weeks and some weekend programs where most of our study took place, um, which I'll go into a sec, we'll, um, we um, accomplished 100 volunteer hours, met regularly with a spiritual advisor of my choice, who was Flint, um, spent a year studying the precepts, um, created a personal lineage, which is part of the Jukai ceremony when you um, take the precepts, which of course we had a ceremony recently here at Apamata, very similar ceremony, almost identical. Um, for people who hadn't yet taken Jukai, I had. Um, they also sewed their rakasus, um, but I didn't uh, do that. And um, participating and leading opening and closing council circles, so a way of formally um, gathering when we've been far apart, and then also closing after we've spent intensive time together learning and sharing. Um, two week-long silent meditation sessions, both of them online. Um, one of them I did with part of my cohort in a house that we rented in Oregon. Um, we basically created a zendo in an Airbnb house and um, I'm so grateful for my practice here that I was able to help create that so that we could um, manage um, a three-person session, um, which is a very rigorous schedule. It usually is supported by a whole bunch of people. Um, so we did laundry and cleaned the bathrooms during work period. Um, um, monthly meetings with a small group, so a small cohort that I was part of four field trips, eight book reports, 26 other short papers on um, reflecting on in very specific ways uh, this, the topics that we had studied, and um, a final project and presentation. And some of you attended uh, the final presentation, and I'm so grateful. It really meant a lot that, to see you there um, online. Um, and I, I graduated last month and I received 48 graduate credits. Um, the majority of my volunteer hours I spent um, volunteering at Heritage Park Nursing Home, which is a nursing home 
in East Austin, um, and it is specifically for folks um, who can't live independently, um, aren't necessarily elderly, but have um, some physical and or um, cognitive uh, disability and have um, very, very limited financial resources. So um, some people are there for a short period of time and are, you know, rehabilitated. Um, but the majority of people, uh, once they move there, um, this is where they're living. Um, and there I teach chair yoga and I've assisted with creative arts projects through a local nonprofit called Creative Action. And I'm still volunteering there. Um, my final project is a paper called um, Small Beautiful Things, How Creative Practices Alleviate Suffering for Care Seekers and Caregivers. And in the paper, I speak to how being present with others who are suffering is a creative act, both for um, the caregiver and the care seeker, and that mindful creative practice practices whether it's painting, music, making a meal, sewing, woodwork, um, even gardening, if done mindfully and with a light hold on outcome. Um, all of that work has roots in Zen and it also serves to support healing, connection, and community, which to me circles back to um, the meditation and writing intensives um, that we've held here is, um, I feel like they have definitely uh, created healing connection and community connection between people, but also connection between, um, you know, with someone connecting with their inner life. So here's a list of some areas that I studied. And this is the place where if you hear something and you want to later learn more about it, um, you could reach out to me through the people tab on the website or you may know how to reach out to me otherwise. Um, systems theory, ethics, um, skills for self-stewardship, for compassion-based action, which is the GRACE model, which I know Buddhist Action now um, studied a year ago, I believe, or maybe two years ago now, um, from the book Standing at the Edge by Joan Halifax. I should mention that Roshi Joan Halifax is the founder and the um, abbot at Upaya, so she was present in the program and taught, though she turned 80 during the program and is slowing down slightly. Um, skills for listening, such as a process called insight dialogue, um, approaches for self-study and resilience, like internal family systems, which we use here. Dick Schwartz actually spent a whole day with us um, via Zoom, and um, something called the social resilience model, which is used with people who have experienced trauma in, in war zones, refugee camps, um, after natural disasters, etc. Ways to um, very simply help people tap into their own resilience through very um, accessible practices. Um, we also um, got to spend time with Dr. Judd Brewer and Gabor Mate speaking about addiction causes and healing from addiction. Um, we spent time uh, considering racial and social justice um, with indigenous leaders um, in, from the Pueblos in New Mexico. Father Gregory Boyle of um, the Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, uh, which is a gang um, violence um, 
mitigation. Um, he would that that's such not how he would describe it, but I'm, I'm going to be quick. Um, a community of kinship is how he would describe it. Um, learned about um, the night ministry in San Francisco, people who volunteer um, between the hours of I think 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. and just walk through uh, San Francisco um, just to be with people um, in bars on the street, just wherever people are at night. Um, uh, they, ha they have some supplies, but their real purpose is connecting with people at night when um, things can be very lonely and scary. Um, also, um, interestingly, a group that turned a plantation in South Carolina into a cooperative farm for black farmers and a center for racial education and healing. So some really cool um, people doing really interesting, um, impactful work. Um, we also spent time um, obviously learning interfaith approaches, meeting with rabbi, um, indigenous spiritual leaders on sacred interconnection and the notion of the sacred hoop. Um, and then also with some um, folks from the Center for Action and Contemplation, which was founded by Father Richard Rohr. And um, many of us are familiar with Richard Rohr's writing and um, thoughts, books. And then, of course, end of life care with Frank Ostaseski, Roshi John Halifax, and Tenzin Kiyosaki, who I'm going to draw from later in a minute. And then um, also uh, end of life care for um, people in the LGBTQI community. Um, and then sort of winding up with spiritual formation and the importance of ritual and a um, day that included amazingly uh, Rebecca Solnit um, in her kitchen in San Francisco, speaking about wise hope and um, a really interesting teacher um, speaking from um, British Columbia on eco-chaplaincy. So you can see how broad chaplaincy might be. It's sort of everything under the sun. Um, and um, so that's a little bit about chaplaincy. Um, I would like now to share with you an exercise that I took part in as part of my training, um, and it's just a little example of um, um, something that was offered to us that I found very impactful. And so I thought it might be to all of us today. And so it's called um, dissolving of the self. And so we know that when we chant the Heart Sutra, we say form is emptiness, emptiness is form. And if you're like me, sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. And other times I'm like, what the hell? Um, and it seems like being able to hold, especially early in the morning, a sense of what that means and how I might relate to it and what it has to do with my day can sometimes be very clear and sometimes has no correlation whatsoever. Um, but when we say emptiness in Buddhism, we're pointing to the concept that everything and everyone is dependently originated. So there's not like one um, you know, this um, computer, while it is a computer that I went and bought at some point, it's made of all these elements um, that came from all these places and it was made by all these people and all this um, uh, generations of thinking and patents and whatnot. And so it could not originate on its own, 
um, it is formless in the sense that it is interconnected with all those things that I mentioned that brought it here with us today. Um, and so I was thinking about here at Alpamata, I don't think we avoid the topic of death, but I think we, um, we talk a lot about um, presence and listening and relating. And um, we haven't, to my mind, spent that much time talking about death. There was um, several years ago, many years ago now, um, a group that met um, uh, kind of in a death cafe um, to talk about death openly and that kind of um, drifted away. And so this exercise has to do with death. And so I kind of chose it intentionally because it's something that um, I can't think of that we've sort of explored lately that I'm aware of. And when we contemplate our own death or we recall observing someone else's, maybe a parent's or grandparent's um, death or a friend's death, um, we may notice how death is sort of a forced way to turn toward emptiness and to realize the interconnection and also drop layers and layers of sort of separate selfness um, that we've come to acquire um, to survive and live a full human life um, since we were infants. And so, um, yeah, so we'll start this exercise in, in a moment. Um, the purpose of it is to give us a sense of what it might be like to experience sickness and death for ourselves or another. And therefore, it might give us more compassion, both for ourselves and for others having this experience. Um, I know sometimes, especially with parents, as they age and become sick um, or less well, it can be so frustrating that they aren't themselves. And this exercise, for me, really pointed up, oh, this is what they must be experiencing some version of. So now is the time that you can get out your paper and pen. We are going to experience dissolving the self. So first we'll, um, I'll guide you through some things to write down and consider, and then we'll spend about 15 minutes in connection groups. And um, I think here we'll, maybe break into two groups. So one group of you can go into the study. Um, and so um, you'll be invited to um, share whatever you wish. You don't have to share what you write down. So know right now before you write anything down, you don't have to share it. You can share later about your experience of it um, or of course pass. So take a moment to think about what's most important in your life right now. And I invite you to actually narrow it down to six things. And so these things might be family, partner, the symphony, gardening, weekly walks with a particular friend. So they can be very generally things or very specific things, but only six. And for just this moment, these are the six most important things in your life. No pressure. Once you have six things, take a look again. 
See if there's anything that you've missed. You might have to do some recalculation. Okay, so let me know that you have decided, okay, this is six things today, right now, this morning. It's not going to be engraved in stone anywhere. And look up so I know people online that you're done and you guys have stopped writing. Excellent. Okay, so this dissolution of the self, I was thinking about, I got to see a baby recently at a certain point in life you don't really see babies that much but um anyway i got to see and really like observe and spend some time with this baby and i was thinking about dissolution of self and how a baby like really doesn't have a self you know their self is the mother or caregiver and they're just so completely in the moment they're not like um oh you know i really like red or uh you know their preferences and attachments are really fleeting and very basic um, so I was thinking, wow, we, we acquire all these important things, right? You know, these six things on your list are things you kind of picked up that have become yours, um, as you've lived your life. Cause a baby wouldn't have, you know, six most important things, you know, mom, mom, another caregiver, dad, you know, that's it. Um, but as we begin to age and encounter sickness, we lose some of the things that we have viewed as defining us. And we've observed that in um, friends and family who we've lost. And so I invite you now to look at your list and cut away two things. What do you mean by cut away? Mark them out. You don't have them anymore. You've dissolved them. Which two things could you take off the list and you're still you? Life is still good, worth living. You don't really need those two things after all. They were once important, like a minute ago. You're sick now. Pardon? We're sick now. Yeah, we're sick now. <laughs> exactly. Well, but we don't know. It could be uh, cognitive and not physical. So um, you don't get to choose the nature of your illness. But um, I, you're like, okay, I'm sick. I'm not jogging anymore. Okay, that's good. I, I know you. Um, so before we go on, take a moment to just notice inside what, what was that like? You had already had to struggle to identify six things that are important in your life. And now you just cut away two of them with no warning, no real adjustment, no conversation. 
So you can probably guess what's going to happen next. <laughs> Is I'm asking you now, even though I care about you all so much, to cut two more things. So I invite you to take a moment to go inside and just sort of notice what is, what's in your body, any emotions. What was that like? And because we're dissolving the self and really experiencing into what it's like to let go of these things that define us when inevitably our body falls away, no longer functioning the way that it did when we were younger or well. You have two things left that are important, thing, important to you. I'm sorry, but you need to choose one of them. And at this point, it doesn't matter if you have not been able to make that final choice. You've had an experience of dissolving the self. And so for 15 minutes, I invite you to be in small groups And um, I think that Maria already has them set up. And Maria, you probably know this, but put Joan and Bill in with someone else. Yeah. They're not their own. Okay. Um, and so when you gather, um, allow enough time that's equal for each person to speak. Um, you can allow a little time for silence to begin. Um, and simply share anything that you want about this experience, um, knowing that right now, those six things and a million other things are in your life. So um, if this experience has been deeply unsettling, touch back to now and that um, we are alive and well enough to be here. Um, but join together and share what that experience was like. Any surprises, any sort of negotiations, um, any takeaways, um, any ways that you may have observed this in elders of your life, um, parents, friends who have died, um, and how it may have um, changed or given you some kind of insight to what that experience might be for others and also reflecting on if it came up for you, how that would be, um, how that may be for yourself. So we'll bow out now and um, form our small groups. And we'll see you guys back in a little bit. So take a moment to arrive back in your seat after the energy of 
being with another person, kind of find your own grounding. Extending compassion to yourself and to the person or people that were in your group. So the purpose of this exercise isn't to necessarily help us decide, oh my gosh, here's the one thing I should be doing all the time. <laughs> um, it's really, it, there's no, we're not doing a self-improvement project here. Um, it's really just to, um, I think as we know that we all will die and we know people who have died or are dying to enable us to have some kind of better understanding and sense of compassion for ourselves and those around us who will get sick and die or have gotten sick and died. Um, because obviously no one would choose to take the six most important things of their lives and cut them all down to one. No one would agree to that except a bunch of kooky Buddhist students on a Sunday morning. Um, and only for a couple of minutes, you can have them all back, plus all the other things. Um, and so I want to um, invite forward any experiences, any surprises, any sort of way that you might have connected this with um, a death or sickness that you're having or have had or someone that you love, um, whether this was, um, shifted anything for you in a um, ideally nourishing way, um, but also um, I um, know that for folks who are actively grieving, this is sort of um, putting a fine point to what their minute by minute life is. And, um, and so for that, I'm um, Uh, I hope that you are finding your ground and also remembering that as we're letting go of these five things, um, we're also finding more and more of that sense of emptiness that is actually that sense of belonging and connection that we can't lose. The sense that our bodies are actually made of stuff that's always been here on this planet. So, um, I open up just uh, anyone you'd like to share. Oh, it's already 11. Mm -hmm. Briefly, I don't know where the time went. I will share if no one else will. Um, I think it, it's really, I think it's really important that when we say sickness, uh, death and dying, that we don't think of it as the end, but where we go back around. And um, I kind of had a little clarity with finding this old pencil the other day in the intensive and seeing it dissolve into the earth. And, and it, you know, it will become maybe not a pencil again. But there was a lot of, of pushback on the idea of rebirth in our uh, group the other day, a, group, a reading group. And, um, you know, no matter is destroyed or created. And I think that's really, so this is not the end. 
I just thought it was curious in going through these things that I was considering being, you know, being sick. And so we already mentioned especially physically. So that ruled out a lot of things that I could do. But ultimately, my little dog was very high on the list because he brings me so much joy and I love him so much. But at some point, I had to let him go because I couldn't take care of him. Mm -hmm. And so it came down to, um, is there anybody on this list, and it was going to have to be human, that could be around that I can connect with, that could take care of me in some fashion, you know? So I wish it, that was interesting, because that little dog was high on the list, and I couldn't figure out how to have him in the, in the nursing home. <laughs> They wouldn't let me have it because like dropping me nutty or you know, just couldn't do it. And to have that that connection severed is, you know, heartbreaking because my little dogs are just right. And it may shift that um uh I have an elderly aunt and she has a deer dog and she has not been able to have her dog live with her for about a year. And um I haven't probably um really empathized with what a sacrifice that's been for her. He comes and visits, um, but it's not the same. I'll, I'll be brief. This took me back to my mother's time of dying and passing. And I remember that her focus became very, very narrow down to her, her pra spiritual practice, her faith. So she loved all of us, but we almost became irrelevant at those last days. It was her practice and her faith that sustained her. And I found it interesting, although not surprising, that when I came down to the one thing that I um, would hold on to, it was this practice up as exemplified by the word Apamata and this community. And it just, I, I had a smile on my face because then it reminded me of my mom. Mm. Yeah. Nelda, what was your mom's name? Helen. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. Thank you.